0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 101. There are many ways to get Python installed on your computer. If you're going to start fresh, what tools would you use? What if you need to manage multiple versions of Python and virtual environments? What about all the additional tools that make your coding workflow complete? This week on the show, Calvin Hendricks-Parker is here to talk about bootstrapping your Python environment. Calvin is co-founder and CTO of Six Feet Up, and is the Python web conference co-organizer. As a consultant, Calvin has set up countless machines to run Python. He configures environments that can scale from in-office projects to distributed cloud-based applications. We cover tools for installing Python, managing multiple language versions, and configuring virtual environments. Calvin talks about setting up command line applications in isolated environments. We also discuss traveling with Python using an iPad, This episode is brought to you by Scout APM, built for developers by developers. All right, let's get started. The RealPython podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Calvin. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. You guys reached out and wanted to talk, and I thought of an interesting topic for us that I kind of went through (laughs) your YouTube history, and I looked at, well, kind of the past three years, and I thought about getting Python installed and things you need to think about there, and you had a lot of great advice in in the videos, and so I wanted to kind of leverage that, and then we can kind of get into more intermediate and advanced things uh, maybe near the end, and then one extra thing uh, that you, you did a thing about kind of road warrior and using Python on an iPad, and David Amos wrote an r- article recently that I'm going to link to also, and I thought we could talk about that too, because I'm, I'm very interested in that. So lots of mm, mini topics, I guess, that we're going to combine together.
1: Oh, yeah. You, you dug deep for uh, three years worth of content there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was cool, though. It was kind of fun. You, you do a lot of talks at, in Indianapolis at uh, IndiePy. Pie.
1: Yeah, so I'm actually one of the co-founders of the Indianapolis Python User Group IndyPy and we've we've been running that actually this year is our 15th year uh, running IndyPy. So we're celebrating with a nice anniversary party this year. I think that's coming up here in April or May. Oh, cool. So if you're in the, in the area and wanted to come by for that meeting, we're going to have, you know, probably a big cookout and and some some cake to celebrate 15 years.
0: All right. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So a couple of talks were from that, and then there was a Django conference talk, but maybe I'll start with the, the first one, which I really liked the title of it. It was a half a dozen ways to fail at Python. Yeah. <laughs> it
1: was so accurate.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think there's still maybe even more <laughs> potentially, Right. Um, but we, we could focus on that. So what was the, the gist of the talk? What were you trying to get across?
1: I mean, it's so interesting with Python being a language that's easy for beginners to get started with and powerful enough for advanced people to do real work. It's still hard to know how to get your system bootstrapped. And a lot of the things I talked about in that how to fail... Uh, which I've actually kind of refined over the years in a couple of other talks you just mentioned, was really, given your use case circumstance, how do you keep your machine from looking like that XKCD, you know, super fun site cartoon (laughs) that I think I've linked to in in all of these talks? Because it's so true. I mean, I I have ended up in that spot. Yeah, I did at
0: a a work environment, and it was, uh, (laughs) I think it's very common.
1: Oh, it's it. it's really common. I mean, way more common than you would think that you would end up with the Mac framework version of Python that's installed with the system, plus the homebrew version of Python, plus the Conda Python, plus an active state Python, plus, you know, name five other ways you can install Python. <laughs> it, it, and I guess that's the, if, if, if you really want to like, kind of get down to the root of what solves some of these problems is thinking about the Zen of Python. And so I, I think a lot of people, hopefully a lot of people are aware of the Easter egg built into Python. If you just type Python minus m this you'll get the Zen of Python printed out to you, and part of it is beautiful is better than ugly, but also simple is better than complex. Yeah. So what is the simplest way that a user, a programmer, or someone new to Python can get started without having to deal with the headache of a lot all these choices? And and there's no shortage of choices. There's no shortage of like web frameworks. There's no shortage of you know. packaging technologies, there's no shortage of ways to install dependencies. And I think that's where a lot of people just throw up their hands and are like, oh, I can't believe, you know, how hard it is to get someone else to maybe get my code installed and try it out when it's working on my machine, but it only worked on your machine because you know the wind <laughs> was blowing in the right direction that time when right. you installed like from Conda, that happened to use the wrong Python. I, it, it's again can get really really complicated, and it's not obvious because it's not always like clear which Python you're using. So unless you've got a good handle on like understanding your path or understanding virtual environments or SysPath and all these other kinds of, you know, deeper in the weeds things that most beginners could care less about. Right. They just want to code some Python.
0: Right. Somebody said at work, we thought you could move from Excel and start doing things in Python. So just start doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is true if if you got enough of the
1: bootstrap basics down so that... I, I think the dream would be I make a folder... And I throw a main dot pie in there and I start coding. And i am you know and I'm productive. But the reality is you may not have even Python installed. Uh, luckily, you know, if a Linux machine or if you're on Mac, you're gonna have a default system Linux that's gonna be there. But you know, user be warned, do not touch that. That Python. Do not install anything to that Python. Do not use that Python for anything. Yeah, uh, because it's really there for the system. That is not your Python. And I think a lot of folks start start there, and they end up with a mess. That's that's the that is the first step, like the first tripwire you will come across.
0: Yeah, that'll lead you into disaster. I'm excited that Apple has finally decided in the latest beta for Mac OS, and I guess it'll be thirteen. 13- Point four? I'm not sure of the number, but it they're going to remove Python Finally. 7. <laughs> um Yeah. Again, they had talked about it years ago, uh, at least a year and a half ago that I'd heard about it kind of finally mm-hmm. going away. And yeah, and you're right, that 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 it's one that came installed and it was for the operating system and some other kind of system utilities to do certain things, but it wasn't really intended for you to use. But if yeah. if a Mac user opened up a terminal and they typed Python, that's what came up, and so that's where this sort of confusion ha- happened a lot with Python and Python three, and and so forth. So maybe we could start with some advice then, like where do you suggest someone to install? python i guess it will depend on the operating system a little bit
1: well that, that's actually what i was going to start with it was depending on the operating system and i try to keep things as cross-platform as possible i, I actually move between you know mac os and linux pretty regular I, I rarely touch windows unless someone's asking me for help okay but i try to find a technique that i can use the same way across all those systems like for example on my linux machine i actually use homebrew to match what my Mac experience. So most of the tooling and things I installed, just like I would install them on a Mac, I do the same thing on on Linux. So I recommend to folks to check out Homebrew uh, because, you know, apt can be tricky for for new people. But Homebrew is nice because it follows one of my major rules, which is you should not be using sudo or root privileges or administrator accounts to install any of these things. So that's like kind of the base level starting point.
0: Maybe we could do a quick diversion into it and again we'll shoot to the total total beginner maybe they don't even know what sudo is yeah and they may
1: not know what it is but they may be using it because they copied and pasted some <laughs> some yeah, in, right. some install thing off the, stack uh, ins- off the overflow
0: has suggested I, I just copy and paste this <laughs> <it> into my <laughs> right, terminal <laughs> right
1: well if it has the word sudo in there please stop uh, take pause as as you should because really, you shouldn't need to be using sudo. If you're using Homebrew on Mac or Linux, and actually on Windows, they have an equivalent called Chocolatey, uh, which my Windows friends seem to rave about, and it has basically the same, same gist. Like it's a way to install other programs you would use in the course of your work. I, I recommend starting there because you can install Homebrew. I believe you can even install it without needing any root privileges. You may need it because I think it puts it on Mac, it puts it in user local. on Linux, it puts it into a new home directory for a new user that you can actually share amongst other users on the same system. Way advanced topic we probably won't get into or talk about. Sure. But from that point on, you're just going to brew install, you know, brew install Pyenv. brew install Python, brew install, you know, whatever tools you may need or dependencies that, you know, whatever project you're working on may use. Now, I don't recommend the Brew installing of Python directly either. Uh, that Python is typically in there as a dependency for other apps you may sell from Brew. Okay. And so if you're going to install a Python on your local system, and we're not talking about containers yet with Docker and things like that, I recommend getting PyEnv. You know, it's P-Y-E-N-V, not to be confused with PipEnv and you know, some other, like, there's so many similarly sounding things, but PyEnv is the way to get a Python onto your system that is yours and you can play with and you can mess with and you can blow it away and you can reinstall it and you can get exactly the versions you need because you mentioned already, like, Python 2.7. Well, that's, you know, old and ancient stuff, but you may have a project you run across where that's what you need and you shouldn't be using it, but hopefully you're moving forward to, like, 3.0 at some point. Right. You may have projects where you want to try out the latest and greatest, like, 3.10, But you may have projects that are a little more stable and you're on 3.8 and 3.9 and you don't want to rock the boat and actually be doing development against a slightly different minor version of Python because it could have just unintended consequences or you could start using features of that version of Python that's newer that aren't available in your target deployment environment. So PyM lets me install the specific version that matches wherever I'm going to deploy this to. So if I'm Putting it on a, you know some machine somewhere else or in somebody else's environment. First question you probably want to ask them is well, what version of Python should I target for this application?
0: And if it's your own stuff, I'd recommend going for like latest three ten. Yeah, definitely. I I agree with the, starting with three ten. I have looked at Pyenv and, and played with it a little bit. From what I understand, it is primarily macOS and Linux based.
1: Yeah, there's a a Windows workaround. Yeah, there's like a Windows workaround to be able to use it. I again, I'm I'm less experienced on the Windows side, but I know there are ways to do it. The kind of next step of consistency and probably getting things simpler. Once you can get your head wrapped around an extra layer of tooling, is going to be using things like Docker containers to to work and write your code. So if if you really truly want to be portable, where you don't care. If it's a Windows person, a Mac person, or a Linux person, uh, a Docker image will run on all those environments exactly the same because typically they're going to run in on Windows. It's going to run using WSL two, which is like an Ubuntu Linux kernel. On Mac, it's going to have a, a I came with the um, virtualization you know hypervisor is going to run some Ubuntu VM to run that Docker container in, and then on Linux, you know, it's going to run natively typically on the kernel you've got available to you. So it's, it kind of levels that playing field from the, what, what version of Python and, and how it's all going to interact uh, to just using that bundled version of the image. And then you can now make your code, you know, a simple Docker file of like three, four lines really can get you started. Uh, in the talk I did at DjangoCon at the very end, I showed off using a Docker file to do some simple development. And I th- I'm actually giving this talk again at PyCon in Salt Lake city coming up here, uh, end of April, beginning of May. And I'm going to change the talk up a bit to talk more about images and containers. Cause I think that's really, that's an easy way for once I've gone beyond being a solo, solo developer on a, on a thing I'm building and I've got someone else I want to share it with or use it with Yeah, this now makes sure that they have the same experience I have. In developing, so I can be effective at helping them. They don't run into all the weirdness kind of problems because it really—that's the you know, almost the most isolated way you can run some kind of Python code—is because I'm running it in that container, and unless I've done something really special, it's not breaking outside that container to do anything. It's definitely not bringing in dependencies from outside my container
0: to run. Yeah, I think about. I don't know, this brings up a whole bunch of things. We have talked about Docker off and on on the show. I had Edomar. Uh, Turner Trowing on the show, and mm-hmm. he's kind of made that a bit of a specialty. Oh, yeah. Talks a lot about optimizing, you know, the containers and things like that. And so I'll, I'll include links to those kind of resources. Oh, definitely. His material is great. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about Docker generally is that phrase you hear as a joke or almost a meme in the developer community that works on my machine. Yeah. Totally. Type of thing. It, it's, really not a machine then per se you're kind of sharing this container which has all the development machine environmental things all kind of combined right it it really depends the the container and that really
1: depends The, the container is just a packaging technology and you can package as much as you want into that container or as little as you want into that container knowing that it's it's going to run as a, a Linux container inside of, you know, if you get an Ubuntu system and you're running Docker, you can have a very minimal, I think they've even got base images that have almost nothing in them. Okay. Because you have so little dependencies in your package to run on. So if you're running Python, you can use the, uh, there's slim, you'll hear you'll see tags out there for these Docker images, for base images that are slim. And those remove just a lot of unneeded dependencies out of that container to make your image smaller for and also there's less attack surface for attack vectors because you don't have all this additional software installed in that container that maybe you're not using you only really need installed into that container the software you are going to actually use now it is possible to install or ship inside of an image all of the binaries for a whole os so if you wanted all of ubuntu right available to you and you want to just launch a bash shell and start running commands that are on any ubuntu machine you can do that you don't need it that that's that's going to be definitely a way bloated approach to shipping your piece of software out to someone typically you want to only have in that container the only the necessary bits to to run your python code so it's going to be the python interpreter and and any dependencies the python interpreter would have as far as libraries on the system which are relatively small. I mean, you they, if you look at those slim images, you know, they're in tens of megabytes sometimes.
0: Right. And the things that it's removing are the things that would make it a, a complete operating system yeah. in some ways. <laughs> we went down a, a really weird path once at, at a job I, I was on where our code was sort of tied to Windows. <laughs> yeah. And so we tried to do a, a Windows Docker container, and it was really hard <laughs> to find a <laughs> container that you know, at the time was properly running it and the size of it. And it was just, it was really kind of a, a weird task. Cause it seems like for whatever reason, the, those slim containers, they've been able to really excise it down to just what you need. And then in those cases, the, the containers you're you're talking about would have the Python installation would be there already. Correct. Like you would use a base. Typically you'd want to use one of the official Base
1: Python images, and depending on your needs, again, taking the slimmest one you can possibly use, and for most folks, it's probably going to be really small. I mean if you're just running like a flask app for an API or Django even you don't have a lot of dependencies on C libraries that would be in the full operating system, okay I mean unless you're doing image conversion and you needed to have some kind of C library available that some Python piece is wrapping around you you can get away with a very, very small image
0: okay. So that would be something that you might run into if you're needing, like, FMPEG FM- or something like that? or
1: but Yeah, if you're doing, like, some uh, video conversion or any- anything like that. I mean, that's okay. another power tool of Python is being able to reach out and use C- other C libraries and easily wrap around them. But it may not be obvious to you as a, a maybe a new person to Python that you are even doing that, because Python does make it very easy. If you just install, you know, you pip install uh, Pillow for doing, like, image manipulation. right. You're going to need to have some C stuff installed to support that.
0: Yeah. That's something that you kind of wake up to even, you know, I had my own experiences in, in just updating my computer to the latest OS where, uh, it broke things, you know, like it, it no longer had, um, the certifications installed just by me moving to whatever the latest Mojave. Is that the new one? The latest OS. Oh, right. Yeah. Cause all the package signing is all new. Yeah. And so it's just like, Oh, you can't do this anymore. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, and I know how to fix that. Like I've, I've solved that before, but in a similar way, like I lost other things, like my, my version of homebrew broke. Oh
1: yeah. And so, and that, and again, that's an area where just stick. And we've, it's funny, we've talked for 18 minutes or almost 20 minutes. Yeah. And we've not even talked about installing a Python package yet, just, just talking about getting a base Python installed. <laughs> <laughs> but I have I've had that problem where the homebrew installed versions of Python that I then in turn use to make virtual environments for my various projects. Like I could you know, after an update and I run homebrew update, all that stuff's broken. Like it's just the you know, the wrong libs are not there in the right places anymore, and it's really kind of a pain. You know, to deal with, which is another reason I really like the approach of using pyenv to install any base Python that I would use locally. And then pyenv has some nice plugins. With pyenv, you can use the virtualenv plugin and make virtualenvs that is aware of. For example, there's some nice functionality when you've got a Python version specified in a project. As you cd into that directory, pyenv will pick up the fact that, oh, I should now be using this virtual env or this version of Python instead of the global one. And as, as a new user and not wanting to have to think too much or think too hard about switching part, you know, virtual environments, because that's another thing that trips people, people up is if I create a virtual env, like maybe I did Python minus mvm, you know, and I made a virtual env inside of wherever I'm sitting right now. Right. I have to remember to either activate it or use that Python explicitly in my path so that I'm using that specific sandbox. Right.
0: You even hit hit that as a stumbling block in your own video.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. I did, did. and it was a kind of a perfect example of that. (laughs) um, You know, illustrating that that point. But with PyInf, having that directory aware virtual environments is super handy, just to make that part of the problem go away. So that I know when I'm sitting in the right place, I'm getting the right Python for my right project, and when I go someplace else, I'll get all the different dependencies because I'm in the right directory over there.
0: It's interesting because, like you're saying, like if you were sitting down, a, a brand new user, it might not that might not be an obvious choice. No, it would not. I think a lot of resources would probably say, "Oh, go to go to Python.org and download it." And we haven't even touched on data science, which is a whole other ball of. <laughs> Uh, Environments, (laughs) and I I find that interesting because, like, I I played with Pyenv. I I did like that concept of going into a directory and it being aware. That was really nice, and not only that, that you can kind of pin not only the virtual environment, which has all of the packages and things that you're using along with it, which we'll we'll talk about much more, but also a, a version of Python that is like you know use a local command, right? That says for Mm -hmm. this directory, I want to use Python, you know, whatever, it's gonna be 3.9 for this particular project or what have you.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Scout APM is an application performance monitoring tool designed to help developers find and fix performance issues quickly. With an intuitive user interface, Scout will tie bottlenecks to source code, so you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities, like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. Scout has recently implemented external service monitoring, adding even more granularity when it comes to HTTP requests and API calls. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial by experiencing firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. Get your free trial at scoutapm.com along with that, it's kind of interesting cause you switched over cause you, you were kind of talking about in, in 2019 pipenv. I was, you're right. And I kind of, I kind of <laughs> went through that myself in, when I was just starting 2018, 2019 and I was following along on a particular Django book. And then he was, he was really using those commands and, and locking and doing lock files and stuff that were part of the pipenv thing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, I don't know what happened. It just kind of like the support <laughs> kind of got really wonky uh, for pipenv, and and then it seems like it's kind of come back with um Py, the Python Packaging Authority kind of taking it over. And so
1: yeah, yeah, it got taken over and put underneath their repository. I was a huge fan of pipenv when that first released because it did solve a lot of problems nicely for new developers. So when you pip pipenv installed something, it added it to your basically the the equivalent of your requirements file and it added a hash yeah so that if you needed to recreate that environment again you were one command away from having the exact same setup you had six months ago having it today or you know having someone else check it out and be able to get a somewhat repeatable environment because of that but it was kind of unfortunate the I don't know there were there I don't know if you, if you go and read all the commits and issues and github stuff and drama around it (laughs) you can
0: dig in if you want yeah
1: you you can dig in if you want but that wasn't the real reason we stopped using it it was okay maybe because because of the lack of kind of support and maintenance the the resolver started getting really slow oh okay if you had if you had a project with lots of dependencies you could be waiting a bit for pipim to figure out you know what versions of these things it needed okay that that problem hasn't necessarily gone away. It hasn't gone. It only has gone away with pipenv, but other tooling has some similar problems. So you've, you've probably, if you've been following along with pip, yeah, there's been some breaking changes recently as they've been moving to the new modern resolver in pip, and it's bitten us a couple times. Uh, actually, two weeks ago with the latest release of pip, there was a, a breaking change for a lot of things we do. Mm. But in the end, uh, and this is another tool I talk about, and when I use this this tool whether I'm using the Docker containers or whether I'm using Pyenv locally on my own machine with virtual ms. But Pip tools is an amazing package for managing your dependencies, and it has its own built-in resolver. Well, it uses its own resolver. So when you build a requirements file using Pip tools, when Pip tools compile specifically you get a lot of control kind of power user level control over generating hashes or whether you want all the leaf dependencies or don't and and so that control also gives you basically a file of your requirements but maybe you're so for example if your project had requests as a dependency which is very common yeah requests itself has another like six or seven dependencies depending on which version of requests you've installed Well, in your requirements file you may only put requests and when you you know, pip install minus r my requirements.txt is going to bring in the seven other dependencies that are needed. Right. What we typically do is we'll have, for just a convention's sake, we'll have a requirements.in file That has requests in it. Okay. And then we use pip tools compile to build our requests.txt file, which has the full hashes and all the dependencies fully listed out, fully resolved, ready to go. Okay. So that when I go to my other machine or into my container and I want to install all those dependencies, I can actually disable pip's dependency resolver altogether. I'll just say, you install what this file says, kind of like the I know what I'm doing mode. And, and it goes a lot faster because then it's not doing a lot of checks you know, on the backside to figure out
0: what dependencies are needed to satisfy, you know, some root dependency in that file. Okay, so that's something, and I mentioned this kind of before we started, that I hadn't seen this. And it's something that I'm, I'm learning more about just by kind of looking through documentation and especially looking at pip tools and then your talk, you were using it for the DjangoCon talk. Let me just start give a quick background. I'm guessing a lot of people have used PIP, which is the Python, you know, installer for packages. When you've installed several packages, there's a way to freeze those basically requirements, the things that another person would need to, or you would need to, recreate, you know, this environment that would have all of the installed packages you need to get going. Mm -hmm. And you'd save them in a requirements.txt text file. And, those generally would have the names of the requirements, you know what pip's going to use to reinstall them, and then it would usually have like an equal equals, and then a version number, right, um, in there. And you can kind of do some interesting stuff with that. And I have resources if people want to learn more about like, you know, how you can kind of control like, oh, I want to have only up to this version or what have you. But sometimes that requirements, that freezing, <laughs> can be overly verbose and, and, you know, add every single thing. Like you said, I just need requests and I need it to be this version. I'm not so concerned about the additional items that request is going to require. And it and PIP will go and resolve and find the other items it needs. And so when you started to just talk about this idea of requirements.in or in file, which is still a text file, but it, it's it's... Being approached differently, does that file have just the the primary items that you are looking for, like I want the request library, and then the dot t x t file has the actual like hashes of the versions that you want that are specifically like pinned to you know this version that I want or I guess locked to this version I want exactly, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's that's
1: exactly right. So with that in file, you get to express your preferences. Mm. If you have a preference for a minimum version for a specific package, but you don't care about the maximum, okay. Which actually, or you may have a range. Like maybe you're not ready to take the next major version of a dependency, but you know you're okay taking you're you're okay taking any minor revision in between. Okay, you would express that dependency in your in file. And then any sub dependencies of that dependency, if the library maintainer you know did a good job of packaging that package, he'll that you know they will have in their setup.py, you know what their ranges of their dependencies are. Okay. And so I, I want to make sure, and this is another problem with pip freeze specifically. If you pip freeze, you know a week ago. And then you pip installed requests again today. You may get different versions of those dependencies because they're also moving targets. Yeah. And the requests library itself is fine with, you know, up to a certain version of this or at least a certain version of that. And I don't want to pick up those security fixes and minor uh, revision changes for those 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 leaf dependencies. I want to be able to make sure I get those rolled into my work as I'm moving my package forward or whatever project I'm working on. Okay. And not be locked back in this like. Kind of prehistoric age so it's combining the need for repeatable builds but also staying up to date on minor revisions and security patches and performance updates okay that i think pip tools compile being able to specify like what my preference is and then having pip tools compile always build a new requirements.txt file every time i run a compile gets me both those needs satisfied so at any point in time, I can always go back to a, a version of that request requirements.txt file and get exactly that version with exactly those hashes. And if nothing matched, if those, some of those things or some part of that does not match up, it'll warn me or I'll get an error or it won't, it won't finish compiling. So at least I'll be aware I'm not getting what I thought I should be getting. And at the same time, if I get the most current version. And so, for example, security and supply chain in Python packages has been an, an issue in the news probably for the last year and a half. Yeah,
0: I've had a couple of people on <laughs> yeah. talking
1: about it. <laughs> so one of the things you can do is, for example, if you're running a a, a Python package, you could use a tool like uh, Safety, you know, from the PyUp folks, but have a a scheduled uh, weekly CI job that runs Safety against your pack your requirements files, and if it if it fails like because maybe there's some C V E that has come up in the last week, you could have it rebuild or recompile your requirements.txt file, automatically rerun your test suite, and if it all passes, you could actually re-release a new version of that image or container. So you can automate staying on top of very minor security fixes typically or don't affect the running of your program. Like they shouldn't change an API in a breaking way. Okay. But you want to make sure you have those security fixes Baked into your product or your deployment as soon as you possibly can.
0: Yeah, it, it has been such a theme. Thinking about your own sort of software supply chain. Yeah, and uh, the last <laughs> conversation I had just even uh, on the last month, we were talking about. Brett Cannon had a pep that was trying to figure out a way to standardize lock files. Yeah, and it it got you know it, they didn't decide to accept it, and so. It's still like, as we have already discussed, there's lots of kind of tools uh, to kind of look at this. And so it's it's nice to kind of, all right, well, you know, here's some advice. Here's some ways to kind of look at it. I, I Brett did mention PIP tools also when we, we talked. That that's what he mainly uses. He primarily has, you know, whatever version of Python installed on his particular project and then just creates virtual environments, you know, in the directories as he kind of goes. When you use a tool like pyenv, does it behave well with like an integrated development environment? Does it seem to mind and, and is it able to find the versions of your Python that it's supposed to be running everything from?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when as so I'm a I'm a PyCharm user primarily, but I know we're trying to support also users on VS Code in our our own consulting company. Okay. And so when you go to choose whatever interpreter for this project, or it it may even pick it up based on the .dot python version file that was put at the root of your project. Okay. It should pick that up, and it actually it'll be aware of all the Python's that are you know, in its path or anywhere in its path because PyEnv does some, some path manipulation to make those things visible to, to your, well, your terminal or your IDE. Uh, you know, so it's easy to, to switch between them. Okay, cool. Which is super. Good. And then some a lot of the IDs are also very aware of, of Docker containers. So if I've got an image either running locally or even remotely, I could have a Docker or a communities, you know, mini cube running on another machine someplace with the uh, PyCharm and, vs code i can set up that as my python interpreter and when i hit the run button in my ide it actually like ships that stuff up into that container basically and runs that
0: wherever it's at do you have any resources for someone wanting to learn more about that or use that or tutorials that you you've seen that would be good i mean you don't necessarily have to call them out of your head right now but we could share them in the notes later
1: that's there's still a lot kind of developing there. So I don't know if I have any resources sure. off the top of my head for sure. i look around. But we're working a lot right now at Six Feet Up on the developer experience. Yeah. You know, making a kind of a maximum efficiency power user, maybe power user is the wrong word. You don't have to be a power user to have a good developer experience. Right. I think you just have the right tools sitting at your fingertips so that they're accessible and easy for you to use.
0: Yeah. Maybe you're not like a encumbered user or something, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're able to just not think about it and able to just work, you know, which that's the goal, right? Is if, if you just get, I I love this
1: goal. I think I may have mentioned this in the past where if I, Ordered a new Mac and it got shipped to my house. Sure. From the time I, you know, broke the plastic on the box and opened it up, to the time I'm actually writing code and deploying, it would be nice if that is like in measured in hours or hour, right? As opposed to sometimes it could be days getting things set up, you know, from VPN clients to IDEs to all the dependencies that you would need to get started on a project. Where I just want to get clone. Maybe I have a make, we've been using make files in a lot of our projects to help ease getting things started. So I may just, you know, get clone my repo repo, and then I just run make up and it builds the container locally and then starts up the Django instance, starts up the database, starts up Redis and I'm, I'm developing a way and I didn't have to think about installing Redis or Postgres or you know, running the migrations because the the make up command just handled that as part of the dependencies of bringing
0: up the Docker Compose bits or whatever, and as part of the environment. So if and I'm guessing this is something that's happening for you right now with probably remote workers, if you hired somebody new, one of the first things you would have them do is if it, you sent them a Mac laptop would be to install the Docker mm-hmm. tools and and then a code editor. And then potentially you would just send them to a a Git repo that they could clone and just get started. Yeah, from there. Okay.
1: Yeah, and and speeding up that build process also includes things like having a container registry Mm. available in that project. So when they maybe they authenticate to whatever cloud provider the project's being deployed into or whatever CI environment is doing the builds, and now they can pull down. A pre-built last known good version of that image, and use that as the base for them building their own locally. So then it even speeds up that build process further. From maybe it takes a, a you know minute or two for them to build the initial image. Now they can get that initial image up and running in you know tens of seconds. Wow, so it really sounds like you've shifted over
0: <laughs> to this environment. That sounds great.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, it seems, and we're, right now we're looking a little more seriously at. Kubernetes, okay, and being able to support a developer who has to run a large stack of software, right. to be able to to make a feature change. I and mean, a lot, of, a lot of you know enterprises or orgs have moved to maybe microservices, or they're using lots of different services in their application, whether they're open source or not. But you can. Generally, for most of those services, install a local copy of it. For example, if you are working on a project and you had, I mentioned this before, like a Django container, uh, maybe you've got a Node Express container that's running the front end, and you've got uh, Redis and Postgres, maybe you're using KeyCloak for authentication, so you're running a local KeyCloak instance, uh, maybe you're running ElastiCache for doing some kind of search, so you got to run that container as well. Those can really start to stack up as far as like system resource usage. Yeah. And instead of buying a developer with, a you know, a Mac with 64 gigabytes of RAM that costs like five grand, maybe you buy them the entry-level MacBook Pro at like two grand, but then you have a, another machine either in the cloud or under their desk that's a little less expensive but has lots of memory and lots of CPU uh, and can actually run a, you know, Minikube uh, Kubernetes cluster. So they can actually use that as where their containers actually run while they're developing. So you develop locally, but actually the code runs on this like, you know, Little larger, beefier machine, someplace else, or you can even share that resource amongst uh, numerous developers. And in some ways,
0: that not very far remote <laughs> setup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's fairly local, but like it, it's going to mirror more of a distributed setup too. In, yeah. in some ways, it, uh, exactly. As opposed to how local setup feels, often fictitious in the way that the addressing and stuff like can kind of be confusing
1: exactly and you may debug and find edge
0: cases before they ever go to
1: your qa or dev environment because your environment locally looks more like what you're releasing it to yeah what would be deployed out there potentially
0: okay Mm -hmm. this week i want to shine a spotlight on another real python video course the tool this course covers is one that we mentioned in this week's episode If you thought about the complexity of managing several installations of Python, then this course might be the answer. It's titled Start Managing Multiple Python Versions with PyEnv. The course is based on an article by Logan Jones, and in the lessons, Johan Virgir takes you through how to install multiple versions of Python, including the latest development version, how to switch between these installed versions, and how to set up virtual environments using PyEnv. how to activate those different Python versions and virtual environments automatically just by selecting a directory. Managing multiple versions of Python is something that you will probably experience as you grow as a developer. And it doesn't have to be confusing if you use a tool like PyEnv. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You set up multiple examples with the techniques shown and all courses have a transcript including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. Well, there's a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about <laughs> that's from your talks. And so we're going to kind of maybe skip forward into them. You showed off a tool called PIPX, so yet another thing with PIP in its name, <laughs> right? which I don't know how associated <laughs> PIPX is with it, but maybe you can explain what it is and how you like to use it.
1: So, again, one of my favorite tools, and the naming is obviously confusing to folks who are new, but PIPX manages building these virtual M's and putting things into your path, but not for the project you're working on. It may be for a tool you need. Yeah. So, for example, a tool we use, a couple tools we use here at Six Feet Up are like Black and iSort. Uh, I also love using uh, Top for doing kind of a replacement for glances to see, like, what's going on in my system. But those are all just, like, utilities I'm going to run from the command line. So I may just type black and expect to have that in my path. Or my editor may expect it to be in my path. Yeah. But how do you install black? I mean, you can, you can pip install black. But then what virtual environment is it going into? Is that going to be in my path? So if I just run it from the command line, do I have to, like, modify my path to make that all work? All of that complexity is basically pushed out of the way by PipX. If you brew install PipX, so that works on Mac Linux. And if you have the windows version of, uh, chocolatey, chocolatey. Yeah. PipX will now be available to you in your path, like because it got installed into that package management system. And probably many package managers have PipX uh, available there too, but brew is probably the easiest way to get started. And then from that point, Now, there's one more command it'll tell you to run, like you run pipx, uh, install pipx, and it'll be like, you need to make sure you run pipx insure path, which basically puts some bits into your RC and profile dot files. And once you've got those bits in your dot file, you can now run pipx uh, install black. And now it's going to, behind the scenes, in like a hidden directory in your home directory, create a black virtual environment folder install black and any needed dependencies and then add the black command or script to your path so when you just type black from the command line it runs
0: black as you expect so you get that full on command line interface yeah. application running ready to go
1: and you can install multiple versions so if you want to have you know different versions of different tools another nice thing is maybe you've got uh, another one I use regularly is is markdown like the python markdown package okay to generate some HTML, but maybe I want to have pigments installed into that virtual environment so that I can colorize some text in my markdown. You can actually have pipex install the markdown package, and then you can inject the, the pigments package into it. And then that that's all in that virtual environment, that one sandbox for the markdown package. And you can have a separate pigments Install on in PipX, which gives you a dedicated pigments that's not any way linked or related to the one you just installed into your Markdown environment.
0: Yeah, it's it sounds like a, a neat way to try out a lot of these things too. Oh yeah, yeah. It's really it's easy to
1: uh, keep keep them all up to date. So if you want, if you've got like maybe I got Isort, Black, BPyTop, Markdown, and pigments all installed, if I want to make sure they're all up to date, I can really literally run PipX uh, upgrade all. Okay, and it'll It'll go through each one of them individually and and upgrade all the packages, kind of like you do like an app upgrade or app update, app upgrade. PipX has similar commands for that. Uh, Another thing I use it for is keeping up to date on the latest versions of tools like Docker Compose. Hmm. So you can install the Docker Desktop and it's going to install a version of Docker Compose, but it may not be the latest. So you may not have all the bug fixes, but Docker Compose is just a Python package in PyPy. So you can PipX install Docker Compose, and you've got the latest version. PipX puts it in your path, so your editor, your your PyCharm or your VS Code, is going to be aware of this latest version of Docker Compose.
0: Oh, cool. That's nice. Yeah, it's super nice. What was the one called? Btop? Or what was that again? Bpytop. Bpytop, okay. Yeah, so a couple weeks ago,
1: by the time you hear this, I was on Python Bytes with uh, Michael Kennedy, and we talked about BPyTop. Uh, it's an awesome package. Okay, yeah, you know, it's kind of if you ever type top in your Linux terminal or your Mac terminal, you'll see all the running processes. You'll see some, you know, memory stats like how much free and how much used. You'll see the system load, like you know, the five one minute, five minute, fifteen minute loads. That's all good and, and all, but it, it's basic. If you really want the fancy, tricked out, like awesome experience. Uh, pipx install bpy top and then just run bpy top and you're going to get beautiful trending graphs of cpu usage and network usage it's all colored it's all it's all in your terminal but it is just gorgeous uh way to look at your system and it gives you just stats on specific processes like cpus each individual cpu core uh you can get you know per network interface traffic stats uh, io stats so if you're really looking, if you've got some kind of performance problem with with an app, you can log into a remote server, just install BPyTop, and just sit and watch in wonder and look at like all the things that are kind of going on. So, so you'd have that you just may, running in
0: a terminal window yep. and then running, you know, your other commands and maybe a separate one um, yeah. and watching the performance.
1: Yeah, because not everybody has Maybe the luxury of having full Prometheus and Grafana graphs for every every system they got under their control. This is like a real time, nice way to quick, quick and dirty jump on a machine and see if you can identify a bottleneck. All right, or just marvel at the beautifulness of the uh, text based. Uh...
0: <laughs> well, that's what I th- <laughs> that's what intrigued me on it when you showed it, and then didn't talk about it. I was like, oh wait, what was that? <laughs> it flew by. So, <laughs> so the other way I wanted to talk about briefly is, and I mentioned at the top is kind of going portable and not yeah. taking a laptop, but potentially taking an iPad with you. And I, I already mentioned that David Amos uh, wrote an article that I'll link to, which is really great. It's basically how to run Python on an iPad. And he has some different suggestions. And I think I'll just, I'll mention a couple of the ones that he he talks about. He mentions a tool called a shell, a dash shell. And it's, you know, kind of like having a terminal on your iPad, but it does come with an installation of Python 3.9, so you can actually run scripts and, and other things inside of it. Uh, I haven't run it yet. I'm going to kind of go and play with it soon. That same developer makes uh, another tool that is for doing notebooks. There's a bunch of really great resources in his article. His The tool for doing notebooks is called Carnets, C-A-R-N-E-T-S. There's two versions of that. One that has uh, SciPy included. Um, so if you want to run notebooks on your iPad, you could do that. And then your talk was a, like a lightning talk that just kind of touched on a bunch of stuff about hey, you know, if you're going to go on the road and, and do stuff, and you mentioned a bunch of tools. And unfortunately, some of the tools have have disappeared. But yeah, I know you already mentioned <laughs> <laughs> like Pythonista you mentioned, and which that's still that's still valid and good. It does to work okay. Okay, cool.
1: It does. Yeah, I, I actually literally just opened it up to make sure, so I wouldn't be telling anybody stories out yeah, of school. That's a neat one. But yeah, but Pythonista is really cool. I mean, if you need to run some quick scripts, Pythonista comes with a bunch of modules, kind of opinionated modules already installed. So if you need a MySQL client... Yeah,
0: there's like a Pygame-ish one
1: and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, there's a MySQL client. There's, you know, requests is already installed. I think it even has Flask installed. So you can do quite a bit just with Pythonista, and you can actually open up uh, Python files from the new file system. I mean, with, yeah. with
0: iOS... That has helped it so much.
1: Yeah, with that 13, when they introduced the... That kind of shared, not shared, but like there's a real file system you can get to. Yeah, and you can get to services, not
0: only the iCloud stuff or what's stored on the iPad, but you can, Mm -hmm. I guess, I I don't use Dropbox in this way, but you could use that or, I don't know, do you
1: use a particular file server? Uh, we I use OneDrive typically okay we're, the, we're kind Microsoft. of an Office 365, yeah, we're in Office 365, and there's actually a really nice open source OneDrive client for Linux that I okay. use to basically synchronize my documents folder from my Linux machine to OneDrive, and now I've got them available on my iPad Yeah. because I don't like carrying a giant laptop with me when I travel, so I only take the iPad with me knowing I've got access to Git because there's good Git clients for iPad so you can pull out code, and I've got access to all the documents.
0: Yeah, I wanted to mention that one. You're using, um, you're still using working copy, which is a, a really yeah. kind of cool Git tool for iPad.
1: Yeah, I and mean, it's got nice diffs, and you can clone into your file system and pull things out. One new thing that has just come out, well, not new, but uh, there's a new release of the terminal I've been using for the iPad called Blink. Okay, and if if you are a total like power user hacker. Uh, blink is definitely the terminal you want to look into okay Uh, it's got great support for all the crazy fonts and font ligatures and you know the fancy characters and all those kinds of things but it's also pretty hackable Uh, i think the project is mostly i think there's an open source component to it and so if you wanted to install python into it you can it doesn't out of the box come with python but it does come with some minimal you know linux shell utilities and tools okay uh, and it also includes they have a new web ui web web viewer built into blink but what that means is you can actually launch you can just from the blink prompt type code and it launches the cloud version of vs code locally oh, all right uh, on the ipad and if you've got a code space set up you know with microsoft on github you can actually run your python code that you're coding in real vs code uh, on your ipad And run that code in a container over on Codespaces. Wow. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, the kind of the sky's the limit at that point. You've got full, I mean, not every VS Code extension is accessible for the web version uh, of Codespaces. But the ones that are are all available to you on the iPad. Okay. And it works great. I've I've got a keyboard and mouse hooked up to my iPad. And when I'm traveling, I literally take a 40% mechanical keyboard in my bag with me everywhere I go so that I have that all the times with my iPad.
0: Okay, so it's literally just the set of keys with maybe control and shift and (laughs) command. (laughs) Oh, Um,
1: I daily drive on a 40% too. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'd be missing out like i guess it's missing all the function keys or uh, does it have a, a like a key command oh no
1: but there it's there's there's the alternate commands like there's two okay. functions to access like all the function keys and the numbers and then like all the media keys are there and i can adjust the brightness on the screen at least you get an escape right it, it's all there yeah it's as only as it's got that was the main thing it's got a real escape key yeah uh, that's, that's <laughs> actually literally why i started using linux as my primary desktop
0: okay yeah and then um i mentioned uh, some tools with a previous guest we were talking about devdocs.io and that's a website that you could you could visit and then potentially download them in the browser and have them if you were traveling and you know turn on airplane mode it would still have those documents with you um did you have a different documentation tool Yeah, i know you had mentioned dash back then but he decided not to update it
1: yeah i mentioned dash which Kind of unfortunately it's not updated for iOS. On Linux and on Windows, there's a dash clone called Zeal. Okay. That I use for documentation. But I've I'm gonna have to go find an alternate alternative for my iPad now. Yeah. So I may ch- I may have to check out the one you were talking about. It's so so nice to be able to have those doc sets available yeah. while you're traveling. So you could be on a plane, and if you've got the full Python docs, all the Django docs, you know, all the Redis docs, all the Postgres docs. I mean, you've pretty much got the wealth of knowledge you need to develop almost any application for the web right there.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I have these weekly questions I wanted to ask you, and the All right. The first one is, what What are you excited about in the world of Python? Well, I'm very
1: excited about the upcoming Python Web Conference. Yeah. Uh, we are organizing and putting on the fourth annual uh, Python Web Conference. It's coming up into March, so March 21st through the 25th. We have got six tracks i actually had to update my numbers uh, because we added in a, we added in an additional track so it's basically five half days a little over half days with six tracks each day a keynotes at the beginning and the end of every day so you're going to have like 12 uh, well something like that so you're going to have ten, ten 10 plus a couple extra bonus ones in there keynote speakers every day wow and these are some just fantastic people. Uh, if you go to pythonwebconf.com, you can see the speakers page. That's probably my favorite page to go to. I go look at it, you know, periodically because there's new people being added. Uh, although it's pretty static right now, we've got I think everybody's settled, but we've got over 90 speakers who are joining us for this amazing journey. Uh, there's going to be a whole track of tutorials. So each day there'll be some long form. Bring your bring your laptop and actually you know learn and and code alongside with the speaker. Uh, type talks, and then all the speakers for two tracks of app dev, a track of cloud, track of pi data, a track for culture. Uh, all the topics should be covered there.
0: Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, you've been doing kind of a, a bit of preview videos with yeah. some of the talks. I, I thought that was interesting, and maybe you had started that last year too.
1: We did. So it's kind of neat little teasers. Just super quick, like kind of Twitter, bite size, yeah. you know, grab a couple speakers. And I've been focusing on maybe not necessarily the most well-known people in the community, trying to shine a light on some of the people who are maybe new to speaking at the conference. So if you saw the one that came out, I think last week was Natalie Roberts. Uh, she's actually local here in Indy. She has spoken at Pi in the past, but she's not necessarily like world-renowned like some of the other speakers who may are coming to the conference. Okay. So I make sure that they get their their time, their moment, and then actually... They're just all amazing people. So check them out. Uh, Those are some cool little teasers. Uh, I'm recording a bunch more of them. So look for more of those coming out on Twitter. If you follow Python WebConf on Twitter, I think that's where they're mainly getting released. Or you can follow me because I'll probably retweet a lot of them too. Cool. Yeah, uh, I think we're... Looking at almost a 3x increase in attendees so far, if we look at our ticket sales right now. So grab your tickets. It should be a lot of fun. It'll be on the Loudswarm platform, which is uh, we've, for the last two years, which is where we've done the conference. Yeah. Is on, is on that platform we developed. It's running Django, so it's actually delivered in Python.
0: Yeah, yeah. You talked about that quite a bit last year when yeah. we were talking about it. That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a, sounds like a really awesome platform. And, uh, you know, again, people sometimes want to go. Well, where is Python actually being used? And it's like, well, here you go.
1: <laughs> <Here's> <laughs> right. Whole conference being
0: hosted <laughs> uh, via Python, which is great. So, what's something that you want to learn next? Oh, I, I was telling you, if we kind of got started. I think I've
1: declared almost getting ready to declare dot file bankruptcy. Okay. Um, I'm running on some old dot files for my machine that I've just carried along for ages and ages and ages i'm a long time you know vim zsh semi-pseudo power user depending on who you are in relativity okay i may look pretty pretty skilled or i may look pretty pretty meager but i think i need to clean that all out and get some kind of better system right now i'm just using a shell script that pulls them off of my github and i'm checking out a tool called chez moi which is like my house in french yeah <laughs> uh, and it's it's a pretty nice set of tools for templating out all your dot files and basically managing them. Having variables for kind of conditionals: if I'm installing onto my Linux machine, it gets this stuff. If I'm installing onto my Mac machine, it gets this stuff. Okay, it can actually have some scripts you can run. So my current thing runs a shell script and just installs like my dot files and like symlinks my dot files in the right place. But this new tool I'm looking at called Chaemoa, it will actually run like if I wanted to make sure Brew was installed, I can actually if I just got a brand new machine out of the box, just install Shamo and type shamemo uh, apply or you know get my clone my repo and then shamemo apply okay It should install brew and get all the my nice you know tools like get get the git version of git I want and the version of Neo of em that I want and have that all installed and ready to go for me, so I don't have to think too much about getting a new machine ready to go
0: so for somebody who's not familiar with it, the, the dot files are considered that because they're hidden files, yeah is there like a, a specific subset that, that would be specific for all you mentioned several different kind of like shell kind of environment things that in, in sort of settings and, and things like that, like what what are all included in like a, a generically defining what are dot files. Well,
1: and then the, kind of more than just dot files Um, this shame thing can manage any file in your system but sounds like it yeah but for example like in a linux machine you'll have a dot config directory and inside there you may have like i use kitty as my terminal of choice because it's cross-platform okay and so i have my i have a kitty conf that maintains like what fonts i like and what key bindings i want to use and all those kinds of special settings and what color theme uh, i want to use and so shame can actually Install the right version of your kitty comp file. Link in like the like I pull down a a Git repository of kitty themes, and then it can symlink to the correct one for whatever you know feeling I'm having today, and make sure that that stays consistent across all my machines. So it's more than just like you know maybe your .zsh files or your .profile. There's also your .vimrcs. There's all the like plugins for Vim that you want to have, and so these tools manage all those kind of power user things. So as you start getting like more and more comfortable with like, running on the command line. You're going to have preferences about like, oh, I want ls to run this specific way because I want the colorized output and I want you know, maybe little icons or whatever in front of my thing. So I'm going to install pls so I can see a pretty version of ls. So you, you I just, I really love tricking out my machine and making sure that it's like it's mine. I make it mine. Yeah, I feel good whenever I launch a terminal and I, I'm just, i nothing. Everything's a couple keystrokes away. And that's like happiness right there
0: it's your house, <laughs> it is my house. welcome to my house exactly that's cool. <laughs> the idea of it being portable is really crucial too that idea yeah, of that you're sure. you work across lots of machines it sounds like and and need to be able to move those things across.
1: A lot of folks I've met or run into in the community, some of them have a resistance to tricking out their machine, and their reason is, well, if I go to log into some other machine where i don't it's not my computer. I won't have all those shortcuts, and so my muscle memory will be off. Right. But my counter to that is you're one command away from pulling your dot .files onto that machine and a second command from applying them, and now you are completely at home and way more productive than if you didn't have all those tools to start with.
0: Yeah, sounds sounds great. Yeah, a lot of the things that you were showing in your video – of these uh, terminals and these kind of environments, they've definitely shifted <laughs> over the years because <laughs> I oh, got yeah. a, a survey of them um, <laughs> as you went, and they definitely become more graphical and and it's nice because they show lots of stuff. Like in the terminal, it shows you, but yeah, you know, mm-hmm. in the case of pyamv, it's showing the version mm-hmm. of uh, Python that's running and which virtual environment are you in, and da da da. So oh, and and if you're
1: using nerd fonts, you get all the fancy like you know Python icon or the Git icon for all those kind of segments that are on your prompt. And it's those niceties, like those visual cues that makes my brain happy. And it gives you more context information about where you're working. If you had just a standard prompt from whatever machine you were logged into, you wouldn't know maybe what virtual is active or what version of Python would be active. But if you're using one of these power tool type fonts, like I'm using the bullet train shell prompt. And it gives me extra information. It tells me the status code from the last error, if, it, if the last command ended in an error. Or it'll tell me if my working directory is dirty uh, for my Git Git project I'm working on. So I'll know that, oh, there's changed files here. I should probably pay attention, do a Git status or whatever, and see what I've changed.
0: Normally you'd need an IDE or something watching those things for you. Or you'd have to run a command to see that it... Right, okay, that too. Yeah. Cool, awesome. Yeah, Anthony Shaw wrote a really great... Article about setting up VS Code, and it went deep into a lot of the things that you're just talking about. So, if people are interested in learning more about nerd fonts or customizing the terminal to, to yeah. kind of prettify it, it, it goes a, a deep dive into that stuff. Um, <laughs> but I'll definitely check out that that kitty thing. Sounds kind of cool to have something that's cross-platform too.
1: I mean, if you're a developer, why not have a nice, beautiful experience? <laughs>
0: Exactly. Make your house nice. Exactly. It makes you want to work there.
1: <laughs> it does. I mean, it totally does. Like I, I, you know, I get up in the morning and I get on my terminal and I'm just like, oh, this is so nice.
0: It's very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Calvin, thanks so much for coming on the show again. It's really great to talk to you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Don't forget this week's sponsor, Scout APM. Find and fix performance issues with ease at scoutapm.com I want to thank Calvin Hendricks Parker for coming on the show this week and I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player and if you see a subscribe button somewhere remember that The Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com/podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.